The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, Houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The Gospel of the Lord. Let us pray. We do not come to this worship service trusting in our own merit, but thou art the same God whose property is always to have mercy. Have mercy on us today as we seek strategic ways to secure sufficient resources to sustain this wonderful church. Amen. It is both a pleasure and a privilege to accept your invitation to worship with you and to discuss the annual issue of stewardship. It is not easy to address one's friends and neighbors, a few of whom I have known for nearly a third of a century. It is difficult because some of you have heard earlier many of my ideas. Moreover, you probably 
know all of my jokes. <laughs> so you can call them out by number. <laughs> and some of you may think it is inappropriate for a sermon to be delivered by a sociologist. And you may be right. But I'll take a chance if you'll take a chance before the liturgical police catch us. <laughs> Already you have heard readings from the book of Amos in the Old Testament and learned that we should seek good and not evil. In Psalm number 90, we petition the Lord our God to prosper the work of our hands. And in the gospel, we heard a troublesome sentence that many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. We know the denotation of these phrases, but what is their connotation? What is the meaning of these biblical lessons beyond what is stated explicitly? To me, an examination of the text just mentioned reveals a conception of religion that focuses more on the individual than on the community or any other collectivity. I want to be good. I want to do good works. I want to be rewarded with eternal life in heaven. As you know, these ideas have been chosen as the canons of religion canons to be passed down from generation to generation. There's nothing wrong with these ideas except that they are self-centered. And we also know that self-centeredness can morph into egotism. Krista Stendhal, former dean of the Harvard Divinity School, called the introspective conscious of Western cultures including our culture here and in the United States, he called that introspective individualism a psychological plague. While individualism occupies a significant place in human society, it can become a disastrous nuisance if it does not recognize the needs of others. In other words, the individual and the community go together. One without the other is incomplete. Individualism is not limited to religious organizations, however. Frequently, it is found in other institutions, such as education. In the year 2005, a survey of college first-year students was conducted by the Higher Education Institute at UCLA. The survey revealed the three top reasons for deciding to go to college. And they were, number one, to learn more about things that interest me. Number two, to be able to get a better job. And number three, to be able to make more money. No matter how you examine these reasons, they come through sounding self-centered. Again, I say there's nothing wrong with looking out for number one if simultaneously 
you also strive to enhance the community and all of its inhabitants too. Your church, therefore, should be for you an entrance into the community. It should be for you an entrance into the lives of others. I was impressed with the survey of college freshmen when I examined the response to another question about objectives in life that are very important to them. The two very important objectives in life for these young college students considered to be very important were raising a family and wanting to be very well off. These young people are both self-centered in wanting to be very well off and also family-centered, a dual objective worthy of following. Nevertheless, the family to which they want to give of themselves is their family. We have moved from ultimate attention on oneself to share attention on one's family, but we still have some distance to go in recognizing the significance of ourselves to others and the significance of the community and our well-being. Daily we are confronted with the personal and the impersonal, with the individual and the community, all of which can be incorporated in Martin Buber's dialectical frame of reference described as I and thou. The church is the thou, and each member is the I. We must be careful not to turn the church into an it, which is a thing and not a community. It is through the church community that we learn the importance of being mindful of the needs of others, because without community, According to Langdon Gilkey, a former professor of theology at the University of Chicago, we would die. I repeat, without community, we would die. There's not a single person in this room today that gave birth to oneself and reared oneself. You all stand in the need of help from groups. It seems to me that the best way to bring I and thou together for mutual support is by way of love and justice. And this, I submit, is one of the main reasons for the church's being, to help us learn how to be more loving and just to others. That's simple. If you ask whatever it is that you do, is it loving? And whatever it is you do, is it just? then you can wear your badge as a religious person. Because religion is not just for ourselves and our families only. It is for all sorts and conditions of people. I learned many years ago when I was a little boy in the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church in Dallas, Texas, that God is love. This three Word sentence, 
was the speech I delivered in church many years ago on Children's Sunday. I was the I and the congregation was the thou. And I knew that I had done something significant because the congregation with a happy voice said amen and hallelujah. The men stamped their feet and clapped their hands and the women waved their handkerchiefs. I knew that these people in that church loved me for that three-word speech. However, it was not until I became a man, married, was the father of three children, that I really learned what love is. Now the church should help me learn how to distribute the love and affirmation and affection I received from others who also may need recognition and response. While serving for a year in the 1960s as a visiting lecturer in church and society at the Episcopal Theological Seminary before it became the Episcopal Divinity School, I met Joseph Flesher, professor of ethics. His book on situation ethics had just been published and he gave a copy to me. In that book, I read that love is the boss principle of life and that justice is love distributed. And I believe what he said. The love he talked about in situation ethics was not mystical. He described love as making a proper estimation of another's need, and he described justice as love distributed. This is to say one's estimate of another is what love is, one's estimate of the needs of others. And when we act upon that estimation of the needs of others, we justly distribute our, our resources, our goods, and our services so that they are distributed in a fair way. Then I learned from political philosopher John Rawls' book, Justice is Fairness, that the goods and services available to people in this society should be distributed in a way that is fair. Not in a way that is equal, but in a way that is fair. Furthermore, I learned from Joseph Fletcher that there are two kinds of justice, contributive justice and distributive justice, and that the community is primarily responsible for implementing distributive justice by doing what is right for each person, and that individuals are primarily responsible for implementing contributive justice by doing what is right for the community. After learning about distributive justice and contributive justice from Joseph Fletcher, I then began to be critical of President John F. Kennedy's inaugural address many years ago that continues to be quoted even until this day, 
Can't you hear him say, and my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Now, as I see it, both the country as a community and the citizen as an individual have mutual responsibilities. Individuals have a responsibility to support their country, and the country has a responsibility to support each of its citizens. In the physical world, a chain may be no stronger than its links, but in the human world, an individual is strong because of support received from groups and communities with which one is affiliated. I have never met a strong person that did not have a mother, did not have a father, and did not have a community and group with which one was affiliated. So we are called upon to support the church because without it we would be weak. Now I'm telling all of you who want to go out and play hooky, if you stay out too long you're going to be weak because you need this congregation. You need the group. All of us need groups. If, according to the old African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child, I would say it takes a church to make a living saint. And this we all should hear. The church needs your money now so that it can fulfill its mission because we are running low on living saints. And this also you should know. The church cannot do what it ought to do unless it has confidence in the steadfast support of its members. And the members will not contribute generously unless they have trust in the mission of the church. Again, there's that two-way situation of the individual and the community helping each other. These ideas I share with you are applicable to all institutions. It took more than 50 years when, as a, as a, serving as a teacher before I realized that a student could not learn from a teacher in whom the student had no trust and that a teacher could not teach a student in whom one had no, no confidence. I learned that confidence and trust when they happen simultaneously, there is mutual respect, respect for the student by the teacher and respect for the teacher by the student. The reason I learned this is because you don't have to demand respect. All you have to do is have confidence in others. And if others have trust in you, then there is respect. You don't have to make it up. It comes naturally. But you've got to have confidence in someone else. And they've got to have trust in you. And that makes for the respect that we all yearn for so much. What I'm saying is respect is partly your responsibility, but not all of your responsibility. And I'm saying confidence is partly your responsibility, but not all of your responsibility. And you ought to keep giving confidence so that somebody may start having trust in you so that they will respect you just as you will respect them. Respect is a product of confidence and trust happening simultaneously. In closing, may I, few, may I share a few ideas that I have learned over the years regarding money matters 
and the church. I have tried to, but never could get excited about tithing because it does not take into consideration the unique circumstances of each member or each family of the church. I know it's in the Bible, but I'm telling you I had difficulty with it. I am quite sure, if my memory has not failed me, that my wife and I gave less than 10% of our income when we had three children in college at the same time and a mortgage on our home to pay off at nine and a half percent. Now, since our children have grown up, run away from home, and have established families of their own, <laughs> I am sure that we give more than 10% of our income to the church. What has troubled me about the tithe is that it quantifies a relationship between the church and its members that should be based on confidence, trust, and respect. I am not against quantification. I use tables of data often in my work and in my writings, but I will tell you a secret. After 44 years of marriage, I have never asked my wife how much she loves me. <laughs> Her love is something that cannot and should not be quantified, and I'm glad of that. <laughs> and neither should the church quantify the love of its supporting members. Also, I have never solicited a gift in behalf of the church by telling the donor that he or she had a need to give. Church members who have experienced the loving fellowship of a church community will give whatever they can whenever they can, if asked. What I am not reluctant to do, though, is to ask, to ask for what is needed. The personnel and programs of the church, especially programs that enhance the religious capacity of church members and programs that spread love and justice throughout the community and beyond. As a matter of fact, I have another idea, but I can't talk about it today. And it's about this business of, uh, of love and justice and the role of the church in it. Well, I'll tell you part of what I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking that that's the role of all religions. I don't care whether it's Jewish, Christian, Islamic. It is to, to, to teach people how to love each other and to spread justice. You don't have to have any doctrines for that. Indeed, it is my fond hope that in years to come, religion will take its rightful place among all institutions in all nations as the research and development arm that monitors private or public policy to determine whether it is helpful or harmful to anyone and love and monitor love and justice too. That is so important. You don't have to get involved in the situation of do you like the war or don't you like the war. All you need to do as a religious person is say, is it fair? Now, it'll take you a little time to find out if it's fair. But that's what you have to ask. Is it fair? Little children say that. When somebody cuts into a line, what do they say? That's not fair. So, that's the world. The world needs the church and the world needs religion to help it understand what's fair. Because it doesn't have time to decide on what's fair. 
If you're in education, you're trying to get the brightest and the best. And if you're in the economic system, you're trying to make the highest profit and all of that. Well, that's all right. But the church ought to be saying, is what you are doing, is it fair? And that's a new role for the church. But I can't go further on that now because we've got to raise some money. (laughs) The church is and continues to be a place that should be a model of repentance, redemption. And reconciliation. There are many people out there who don't know how to repent and be. I, I gave a, a sermon one Sunday over at the, one of the assisted living places here in Concord, and I wondered what was I going to say to older people. I hadn't looked at my own birth certificate. <laughs> and finally I said, This is what I'm going to say to them. I know that you're getting old, and I know that we are going to die before too long. And let this sermon today tell you to go home after this service is over and call somebody back in the community where you grew up, whom you treated badly, and tell them you're sorry. And do you know, some of the older people said they're going to do that. Because you don't want to die without forgiving somebody for what they did. You don't want to die without saying, I'm sorry. And this is what the church ought to teach you to do. To, to do those kinds of things. I call it, it should be a model of repentance, redemption, and reconciliation. My three R's. The church is and continues to be an essential and necessary institution in our community. It needs the support of the people. And for this support, we should tell the people exactly what we plan to do with the funds we, re- we receive from them. My experience has been that announcements and letters are good, but direct personal contact with donors is better. With the wonderful people who have volunteered to give oversight to the stewardship campaign this year, I believe that something good is going to happen. And it will if you approach the stewardship campaign not with doubt and despair, but as a love feast and a love festival. And I might add, since I know you're going to turn in your pledges today, if you're moved to up it because of this speech, then up it next week. (laughs) They are willing to take a second pledge. I haven't talked with the management, but I think they will. (laughs) I have shared a few ideas about what is unique about money raising in the church. Because the church is an institution particularly concerned with love and justice. I leave with you this poem written by Eden Abez and sung by Nat King Cole. I wish I could sing for you, but I'm a little hoarse. There was a boy, a very strange enchanted boy. They say he wandered very far, very far over land and sea. A little shy and sad of eye, but very wise was he. And then one day, one magic day he came my way. And while we talked of many things, fools and kings, this he said to me, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. Ladies and gentlemen, I rest my case. Amen. Amen. Amen.